Hopefully you kept your thumb in your Bible there at uh, the passage I read for us, Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 35. That's the passage that we will be working through this morning, and we'll be continuing to ask the question uh, that we've been asking all through this series, which you see on the screen in front of you, who is Jesus? Uh, That really is a central question to each of our lives, and it's a central question to the Gospel of Mark as we've been walking through it. As we've talked as well, there's kind of two main questions that we get through the Gospel of Mark. Who is Jesus? And then naturally what comes out of that, what is a right response then to Jesus? Who is Jesus and what is a right response to Jesus? We've bumped into these questions already and we bump into them again today. Now those questions are of course nearly impossible to separate. They're nearly impossible to unhitch from one another because depending on how you answer the first question, who is Jesus, it ought to naturally trickle down into the way that we answer the next question. What is a right response to Jesus? Who is Jesus? What is a right response to Jesus? And so if you think Jesus is a phony or a fraud, it will naturally change the way that you respond to him. That makes logical sense. Uh, If you think Jesus was a good guy, he had some good things to say, but that's about it, that will also change the way that you respond to him. And if you think Jesus is the sinless son of God who calls you to turn from your sin and to trust in him for your salvation, that ought to seriously change the way that we respond to him. But it's not quite as tidy as that, as we'll see in our passage today. In the passage we're looking at, we see mixed responses to Jesus that sometimes don't even seem to follow a logical pathway because these responses are complex. Some follow him, and that's where like, yeah, good, that's follow Jesus, Uh, but they follow him, it seems like, for the wrong reasons. Others reject him, even though they seem to have actually a great understanding of who Jesus is. Some know him better than anyone, and yet they're the ones that accuse him of having lost his mind. And then finally, we do see some who rightly respond to Jesus. So in our passage this morning, we see mixed responses to Jesus. And that forces the question, whether you're consciously thinking of it or not, but I'll ask it to you so that you're now consciously thinking of it. I wonder where you're at this morning. What do you think of Jesus? What has been your response to him? Or maybe what will your response be? Whether you're here and you're you're not a Christian or if you can't remember a time in your life where you didn't know Jesus, this passage is for you. We need to understand these mixed responses to Jesus. Because at least for us, this passage clearly exposes at at least four responses to Jesus. It doesn't cover every possible response to Jesus. But one thing that we can be sure of from both this passage as well as all of Scripture and and all of Jesus' life as we read through the Gospels, nowhere in the Bible is apathy an option. There's no biblical category for indifference to Jesus. He elicits an extreme response from people. They either get it, they see him for who he is, and they respond, or they they outright reject him. We 
We've seen that as we've been working through the gospel of Mark so far. The verse immediately before our passage in Mark chapter 3, verses 6, says the Pharisees, this religious group, went out to uh, immediately held counsel with the Herodians, this political group, supporters of King Herod. So Pharisees and Herodians, they're not friends, but they're willing to band together against Jesus, how to destroy him. So this is an extreme uh, picture of what we see people being opposed to Jesus. Whenever we look at who Jesus is, it calls to question, how might we respond? And so the big idea for our passage is that there are many ways to respond to Jesus. But only one is right. And that feels a little bit presumptuous, but that's, that's not me making that up. That's what the Bible says. There are many ways to respond to Jesus. But only one is right. Now the first response that we see in our passage is the massive crowds that are following Jesus. Uh, these mobs of people, they show us that uh, it's possible to respond to Jesus with a selfish fascination. Some respond to Jesus with selfish fascination. When you imagine Jesus' earthly ministry, I wonder what comes to mind. Like really, if you were to close your eyes and kind of imagine the scene, okay, we can see it now. Yeah, you've seen this picture before, right? At a garage sale, Jesus is sitting there. He's got a shepherd's crook in one hand, maybe a lamb in the other. There's kids just perfectly behaved sitting around and some other onlookers that are just listening in. That's uh, he looks oddly German in the picture, and he's wearing modern-day Birkenstocks. It's, it's a strange image, but that's a lot of times what comes into our mind when we think of uh, just Jesus and his earthly ministry. That's not the scene we get here in Mark chapter 3. And to be honest, that's not the scene. I don't know why there's a, why, what's with the lamb and the shepherd? I mean, there's symbolism there, but it's not the scene we get. We get chaos here in Mark chapter 3. It says Jesus withdrew. There's always this withdrawing. He's often trying to get away, yeah, withdrawing with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. A great crowd. Now, this is an intense great crowd, both in the scope and in their behavior. They come from all around. We get all these geographical landmarks in the passage, which, uh, to be honest, don't mean a lot to a lot of us. We recognize maybe a few of the different names. Uh, but this gives a massive geographical circle of people that are coming from all around to see Jesus. Even just looking at uh, the one there that maybe is the least familiar, right? Idumea or Idumea, it's, it's 200 kilometers away from where they are in Capernaum. 200 kilometers. That's like here to Aurelia. I checked. Google Maps. If you were to walk to Aurelia, that's how far people are coming to be like, man, Jesus is in town. We got to go see him. And it's not just he's in town. We got to go to make sure he's, we, we got to go find this guy. So there is some serious devotion here. They are not just casual onlookers. People are coming from hundreds of kilometers away from different directions. It's also a multi-ethnic group. There's some of these cities are primarily Jewish. There's cities that are primarily Gentile. Then there's mixed cities of Jews and Gentiles. People are coming, all people are coming from all around, from hundreds of kilometers away to see Jesus. And again, we may assume their dedication based on their willingness to travel. I mean, they're dedicated, but what are they dedicated to? Well, they don't really seem to want to listen to Jesus. Something like 40 times through the Gospel of Mark, we hear about crowds. But not once do we ever hear about the crowds 
all responding in repentance and faith, as Jesus calls them to do. For sure, some do, but, but these whole, these, these mobs, these crowds, they are, they are swarming for a different reason. They're desperately clamoring to even touch Jesus with the hope that they'll be healed. And we can see that, that there's a, a, a chaotic element to this. They're not even really concerned about Jesus' physical well-being. Right? Jesus and his disciples, it says later in the passage that they can't even eat because of the crowds. Earlier, we saw that uh, there was legitimate danger that Jesus was going to be crushed. It was just everyone was coming at him. And so a better picture than, you know, the stoic Jesus sitting on a rock with that, you know, garage sale fit picture. Imagine just more like, a beetle or Bieber mania, right? This is, people are going nuts. The paparazzi is willing to run over anyone to get to Jesus. That's, that's the image we need to see when we read this passage. And Jesus, he mercifully continues to do these miracles. This is part of his ministry, but he's made it clear through his ministry that his, his mission is primarily a message. It's not simply miracles, his miracles demonstrate his power, his authority, his very identity. And they demonstrate his message where he comes and says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And as he's healing people and doing these miraculous things, we see that coming to fruition. We see a foretaste in his miracles of a day when all things will be restored. When there'll be no more weeping, no more, no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more disease. But that's what the miracles are are pointing to, they're pointing to his message, right? We get a summary of his message in chapter one, verses 14 through 15. It says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. Gospel just means good news. Proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, turn away from sin, and believe the gospel. That's the summary of Jesus's ministry and he's, he's enacting that, he's living that out, he's demonstrating that in his miracles. But his miracles in and of themselves are not the point. We even see how uh, at different times in his ministry, people come to him and they demand a sign. They're saying, prove it, I want to see this, I'll, I'll believe in you if I can see with my own eyes what you're doing. And he says that's not enough, that's not, that's not genuine faith. Jesus makes it clear that he's not a marketer trying to wow people with a product that they can't refuse. He's calling them to far more than jumping on a bandwagon. Right? We understand the concept of jumping on a bandwagon, right? When a, a local sports team starts doing good for the first time in forever, uh, everybody gets excited, right? Everyone wants to band together and say, I'm a Leaf, I mean, or wh whatever team you want to say. I'm a big fan of this team, right? And all of a sudden we got the jerseys and the hats and we're, yeah, all this stuff. And that's okay. You're allowed to be a bandwagon sports fan. I'm a bandwagon sports fan. But we, there's no such thing as a bandwagon Christian. And what a foolish distortion that is if we're just chasing Jesus for the wrong reason. Jumping on this bandwagon of saying, what can I get? It's not enough to simply be interested in Jesus or to follow Jesus for what you can immediately receive. Because think of those miracles so far in the book of Mark. Right? I'm not downplaying these miracles. We get lepers who are cleansed, paralytics getting up and walking, withered hands stretching out. Don't get me wrong, it's truly amazing. But what about their souls? What about the sin in their life that separates them from God? 
There's a beautiful picture of restoration and a foretaste of this eternal restoration and hope that happens in Jesus' miracles. But in the scope of eternity, it's a blink. So Jesus came to be far more than an entertainer. He came to be more than a reliever of physical ailments, as good as that is. He came saying far more than that and doing far more than that. That some simply can't see past what's in it for them. And so if you follow Jesus or are exploring this thought of following Jesus and you think that he is just this one-stop shop for health and wealth and prosperity, I'm sorry to say that you will be sadly disappointed. But I can tell you that he's far, far better than you can imagine. You'll receive far more, far more than those things, just not in the way you might imagine. Because what Jesus came to do is eternal in scope, not just temporal. And so if you're seeking after physical, temporal blessings, I would encourage you, look to what Jesus says. Look to what Jesus does. It's so much better than that. Don't set the bar. I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, you got to lower the bar. He's, he's not that good. I'm saying don't have the bar so low to think that, you know, simply temporal blessings is what Jesus came to do. It's so much greater than that. Right? Throughout Jesus' ministry, his message doesn't change. The call is to repent and believe to be made right with God. Not to hitch yourself to Jesus and, you know, get your best life now. So some respond to Jesus with selfish fascination. Second, some respond to Jesus with direct rejection. Have you noticed as we've been working through the Gospel of Mark so far, some of the most theologically accurate statements about Jesus have come from demons, from these unclean spirits. I know that's kind of weird to think about if, if maybe you're not familiar with this topic, or maybe even if you are a Christian, uh, we can kind of overcorrect sometimes when we talk about uh, the spiritual realm. Maybe we can uh, live in crippling fear, or we can just pretend to ignore it and just focus only on the physical realm. But the reality of Scripture is it makes clear that there is more going on than just the physical realm. And we see right here in verses 11 and 12, uh, these unclean spirits see Jesus, and they... Uh, they, they come to him. They, they respond to him in a way. And when I say they have theologically accurate statements, look at what they say. They fell before him and cried out, you are the son of God. That is totally true. They have no authority over Jesus. They fall down before him, and then he strictly orders them not to make him known. We've seen this uh, motif already unraveling through the Gospel of Mark, that he is being careful not to just let things uh, spiral out of control, and especially to not have demons being, uh, you know, his evangelists. So they make a, an accurate statement, but he has authority over them. When he says, be quiet, they stay quiet. But what's shocking to see here is they know exactly who he is. They say, you are the son of God, and yet they still hate him. Have you thought about how it's possible to have all the right facts about Jesus, but to still reject him? Maybe you can affirm all the truths of who Jesus is. Maybe you've read big, fat books, and that's given you a nice, big uh, 
big boned brain, uh, and you've, you've, you, know, you have all the right facts, but you miss the point. You really miss who Jesus is. You know who he is, but you don't understand what it would really mean to respond to him. It's a sobering warning for us. And we see a similar thing play out, but expanded in verses 22 through 30 with these scribes who uh, come from Jerusalem. Now, these are the bigwigs now, right? They're coming uh, from Jerusalem. Even though if you look on a map, they're going north. It says they go down just because elevation, Jerusalem's high. So whenever they're leaving Jerusalem, they're going down. Uh, So they're they're going down from Jerusalem. And these are the big deal guys. And again, this is far. This is like uh, Jerusalem to Capernaum is like here to bury Okay, so they're willing to be dedicated. They're going for a long walk to be able to come and confront Jesus. And again, we see that it is confrontation because for a while, the religious leaders would kind of, you know, be around Jesus and they were just, you know, sitting in the corner and kind of watching and maybe they would ask some questions. And we do see that they're starting to, in secret, you know, band together to try to destroy Jesus. But here, there is just direct confrontation. Direct confrontation. And they just accuse Jesus of heinous things. We see this in chapter uh, 3, verse 22. Uh, Their accusation is saying he is possessed by Beelzebul. That's another name or word for Satan. And by the prince of demons. Again, uh, talking about Satan, he casts out demons. So they are seeing Jesus, seeing his ministry, seeing his power, seeing his authority. It's the Holy Spirit working in and through him. They're seeing something that is not of this world. But instead of rightly trusting in him, in his power and his authority, they attribute it to Satan. Now earlier, they accused Jesus of blasphemy. But here, this is real blasphemy, what they're doing. They're dishonoring, they're profaning God. They're seeing the work of God and attributing it to Satan. And now Jesus, he first, here, here he, he confronts the absurdity and the lack of logic of this argument, right? Of, of what they're saying. He said, a kingdom or a house that's divided will not stand. So we can keep the illustration going or the, the thought in our mind thinking about the Leafs we played last night, right? Now the Leafs uh, are a team and, and maybe they say, hey, you know what, we should really mix it up and we want to confuse Tampa. And so what we're going to do is we're all just going to slash at each other and we're going to injure each other and then we're going to score on our own net. That'll confuse them. Now that would confuse them, but it would not be a good tactic. I think we can understand. You don't have to understand hockey to understand that. And so what Jesus is saying, it's absurd for you to say what I'm doing is I'm casting out these demons, is I'm having authority over them, uh, that, that I'm on their side somehow. It's, it just is illogical. It doesn't make sense. Sure, it would be confusing, but it's just, it doesn't make sense. And so he points out the futility of their argument. Jesus is clearly saying here that he is here to bind the strong man. He affirms that Satan is powerful. He affirms that he is a strong man. But he makes it clear that he's come to bring Satan to an end. He's demonstrating that as he's casting out demons. And we see throughout Scripture that he definitively demonstrates that at the cross. When he would be struck, uh, but he would land the definitive blow against Satan. 
We can look to other passages in Scripture that illuminate this for us. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook in the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Jesus is coming to set the captives free. He's coming to do this work, to bind the strong man. Jesus' defeat over evil is good news. Again, Satan is described as the strong man, but Jesus is stronger. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Often we stop reading at chapter, uh, verse 14, but listen to 15 too. So 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Jesus is making clear he's coming to do a lot of things, but he's coming to win a spiritual battle. How dare you accuse him of being on the other team? He exposes the futility, the faulty logic of these accusations and makes it very clear where he stands in regard to evil. Then Jesus goes on to say in verses 28 through 30 something that's caused a lot of people a lot of confusion. Maybe you as well. Let me read verses 28 to 30, and then we'll spend a few minutes looking at that. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Okay, how do we make sense of this? What is this eternal sin, this unforgivable sin? Have people committed this sin? Have I committed this sin? These are question, questions that this passage asks. And now there's been a lot of ink that has been spilled on these verses. And so I would encourage you uh, to go down there if you want and, and dig into those things. But even right here in the context, uh, we... We don't have to speculate. We can see what does this passage actually say? What are the things we actually know about this unforgivable sin, about this eternal sin, about this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, again, the fact that it's exactly that. He describes it as this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit on the front end, and then on the back end, he says, for they were saying he is an unclean spirit. So that's what's going on here, right? It's not some cryptic, we gotta fill in the gaps. He's saying that this unforgivable sin is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying that those who consciously, these words matter, consciously and decisively reject the clear truth that the Spirit has revealed about Jesus, attributing that to Satan, have committed an eternal sin. A deliberate, a conscious rejection of clear truth. This isn't ignorance here. This is seeing a clear truth, seeing exactly who Jesus is, seeing the Holy Spirit working in and through him, and then saying, that's Satan. That's what we're seeing in the passage here. This is not accidental. It's not impulsive. 
It's, again, recognizing Jesus and not only rejecting him, not only denying him, it's deliberately rejecting the truth about Jesus. God in and through him. Again, not because of ignorance. It's about knowing all the facts and directly rejecting him. Just like these demons we saw earlier, these unclean spirits. They have all the facts and they still directly oppose him and reject him. Those who have committed this eternal sin are not worried about it. I want you to hear that. Those who have committed this eternal sin are not worried about it. They are so hardened in their unbelief. And so if you're here this morning and you're worried and you're wondering, have I committed this unforgivable sin? And that's, that's, that's worrying to you. The very fact that you're worried shows that you haven't committed this sin. Because Jesus, uh, some people debate, is Jesus saying they've committed this sin, the scribes here? Or is he saying, oh boy, you are dangerously close? You can make up your mind on that, but it is very clear that he is applying this to them in some way, shape, or form. Because again, verse 30 comes right after 29. He says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And then he references exactly what they did. Right? They're looking at the Holy Spirit working through Jesus, and they're saying, verse 30, he has an unclean spirit. They're dishonoring, they're cursing the Holy Spirit. It's a tough truth and a tough passage. But I want to encourage you one more kind of note on this topic. That you may be guilty like me of missing the verse immediately before, which offers incredible hope. Verse 28, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, Jesus is, is making an oath here, saying, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. All of our sin, all of our sin deserves eternal punishment. Our sin is so heinous and vile, none of us deserves forgiveness. None of us. But the most amazing truth in the world is that our sins will be forgiven through Jesus. If we trust in him, verse 28 can be true for us. That all our sins will be forgiven. This is the core message of what Jesus came to proclaim and to make possible through his sinless life. Through his substitutionary death. He died as a substitute for sinners. And through his victorious resurrection from the dead. Through what Jesus did, what Jesus came to do, verse 28 is possible. Through repenting of your sin, turning away from it, and turning to Jesus in faith. Believing in who he is and what he's done, peace with God can be restored. Right, our peace with God, God in his perfection and his holiness, that's been disrupted because of our sin, our direct rebellion against him. But through what Jesus has done, we can be restored to God. That Jesus, when he died on the cross as a sinless substitute, he took on all of our sin. Every single one of our sins, past, present, future, was heaped onto him. So that if we would turn from our sin and trust in him, when God looks at us, he would see Christ's righteousness. It's this beautiful and almost incomprehensible exchange that happens. And it's why the good news is truly so 
good. This is the story of so many here in the room. And so my question for you this morning to each and every one of you is, do you know this hope? Do you know this hope? Can you say with confidence, I'm forgiven? Gone. Not held over you. Not held off to a later date. Not, man, I really hope I'm forgiven. I mean, I'm forgiven. The good news is that that is the complete truth. That is good news for us today. And so it's how, if we have a right view of our sin, uh, we might look at ourselves even and say, there's nothing worth redeeming. We might even think we're unforgivable. But what Jesus did was actually that powerful. Jesus looks at you and sees someone worth saving. And so this passage offers a sobering warning for those who reject this hope, but the hope could not be clearer. You can be forgiven. You don't need to live in fear of committing an unforgivable sin if you've trusted in Christ. It's the only way to have this kind of confidence. If you would truly turn from your sin and trust in Christ, you have nothing to be afraid of. All your sins have been nailed to the cross. And the Bible and history are full of stories of people that we might even assume this unforgivable sin would apply to. Think of the Apostle Paul, right? A lot of times we think of Paul post-conversion, all that he does. I mean, he was super wicked. Like, he was a bad, bad dude. He was a terrorist. He, he made, it was his life's mission, even though he looked, you know, really great and he had all the education and, you know, religiously he looked like he had it all together. It was his mission to hunt down Christians. But he was not beyond salvation. He was not beyond the work that God could do in him. And so our goal after reading passages about this uh, eternal sin is not to look around and wonder who's committed it. It's not to wonder uh, and, or worry like, oh man, have I committed it? It's to, it's to trust in Christ. It's to look at those words and just soak in how good that news is in verse 28, that all sins will be forgiven if we would trust in Christ. But again, some respond to Jesus with direct rejection. Third, some people respond to Jesus with misunderstanding. What I'm talking about in this point is the sections here about Jesus' family. Sometimes we forget that Jesus had a family, right? He had a mother. He had brothers. Uh, and this is even, I mean, it's not the main point, but this is a comforting word for Christians who know the sting of being misunderstood by family members. Jesus can empathize with that. He can sympathize with you. In that, it's a comforting word to those who know the pain of having family members who you wish more than anything would see the hope that there is in Christ. Jesus understands that. And I'm sure here that his family cared about him. I, I can't imagine anyone really knew him better for the first 30 years of his life. But even they, who were closer than anyone in proximity to Jesus, misunderstood him. And in verse 21, they're, they're trying to get him since they think he's lost his mind. Again, in verse 31, they're, they're coming to try to get him. They totally misunderstand him. 
And if Jesus' own family misunderstood him, it's a reminder for each and every one of us here today who profess to know Jesus to take a good, hard, long look at Jesus and make sure we're not misunderstanding things. Right? Or maybe we even assume that since we call ourselves Christians, or maybe because our parents are Christians, uh, that we are then therefore right with God. There are misunderstanding after misunderstanding that we can have that aren't automatically taken care of just by proximity to Christianity or even proximity to Christ. And no matter how close we think we are to Jesus, uh, it's possible to dangerously misunderstand who he is and miss in responding rightly to him. We don't enter the kingdom because of our flesh and blood. We don't enter the kingdom because of our ethnicity. We don't enter the kingdom because of who our family is. We enter the kingdom of God through Jesus. And the Bible uses powerful imagery of salvation uh, being akin to adoption. Because that's what Jesus has done. We are brought in to the family of God. Now, Jesus is not hating on his own family or the institution of family in this passage. The Bible constantly holds flesh and blood families high. But the passage should not make us think less of families, but it should think, make us think far more of what it would mean to be a part of a spiritual family. What it would mean to really know Jesus in this way, that somehow that's even a, a higher scale than family that we might think of. It's something so significant and miraculous. It's far beyond what we can even comprehend. And there's, there's a glorious truth in the reality of what it means to be a family. That from the beginning, Christians have called one another brother and sister for this exact reason. Because it's true. It's not just a metaphor. But we need to rightly respond to Jesus. And so, that takes us to our fourth point. What is a right response I'm glad you asked. Some respond to Jesus with faith and obedience. We see in our passage that Jesus calls a particular group together. He calls these 12 apostles. The fact that Jesus calls 12 is significant in uh, redemptive history, seeing that these guys are foundational, uh, like the 12 tribes of Israel. There's, There's a lot going on there. Uh, these apostles, though, have a very specific role and calling, something that's it's not repeated. Uh, but as disciples of Jesus, their calling isn't unique. So as apostles, that, that's a particular office for a particular time that the foundation of the church is built on. But to be a disciple really is just synonymous with being a Christian. A disciple is not a word we use very often, apart from being in church, but it's, it's to be a follower. Maybe the best word to, to kind of draw parallels to be an apprentice. And that's exactly what it means to be a Christian. Built right into the name of Christian is to be a Christ follower. A disciple is simply a follower, an apprentice, not simply a fan who jumps on a bandwagon. All Christians are called to be disciples, those who follow Jesus. And in verse 13, we see what we've already seen before as Jesus calls uh, those to follow him. Jesus is taking the initiative. He calls them. It says he came to them, or, or called them, and then they came to him. 
Right? It's not like they reached a certain status and then Jesus said, okay, I'll take that guy, I'll take that guy, I'll take that guy, because they've you know, attained a certain level of righteousness. Um, they come to Jesus by faith, and he calls them. It's not about how good they are. They are far from perfect. It's not about how good you are. You and I are far from perfect. We see this with these guys as the ministry unravels of Jesus. Uh, I mean, we are going to see as we work through the Gospel of Mark, these guys are honestly disasters a lot of the time. They are slow to learn. They're quick to anger. And so again, it's not like there's just a certain level of status that Jesus says, okay, I want that guy on my team. But he calls them, and they respond in faith. It wasn't their inherent goodness, anything else about them. They're a motley crew, too. We can illustrate this by just looking at two of them. We have Matthew, the tax collector. We've already talked to him uh, about him. He uh, also goes by Levi, so tax collector, uh, which is not a super reputable career. Matthew's occupation as a tax collector was to be a middleman, uh, to collaborate with Rome and collect taxes. And then we get the very other end of the spectrum, Simon the Zealot, Uh, who was or had been uh, part of this extreme movement that was committed to holy war against Rome. You could not get two more diametrically opposed people into a group. But Jesus calls together this imperfect, motley crew of people. But then we see, what does he actually call them to do? And I really want you to hear this. So we've seen, he, he calls them to come, and they come. They respond in faith. But then in verse 14, we have two powerful descriptors of what it means to be a disciple. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Let's look at just the first part there. So that they might be with him. That is a succinct summary of what it means to be a disciple. Being with Jesus. How can we expect to learn, to imitate, to follow if we're not with him? Right? It'd be like owning a gym membership and never going. Right? We can't expect that the results come by just, you know, a status thing. This is, it's, it's baked right into the very definition of what it means to be a disciple. It's to be with Jesus. It's essential to the Christian life. We don't read the Bible or pray or worship with a church family to tick some religious box that makes us then tolerable to God. We do those things. We must do those things because they are the means by which God has given us to know him, to know Jesus, to be with him. It's how we can commune with him. And so if you don't have this kind of relationship Uh, This may sound strange to you. Uh, The Bible is not simply just an epic work of literature. It's God's word. Prayer is not simply talking to the sky. It's communing with God. Worshiping with one another is not simply a weekly ritual because we have nothing better to do on Sunday mornings. It's the fertile soil that God has called us to grow in. And so don't skip over the significance of such a simple description of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus to be with him. So does this describe you? If not, don't leave here today without sharing that with someone. Share that you want to grow in this. 
share. I, I don't know what this means, but I want to be with Jesus. I want to understand what that's all about. God has made it incredibly clear, too, that, that to be a disciple is not a solo hike. We do this together. We disciple one another. Next, it says that baked right into the call of these disciples is that he would send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Now, again, this particular apostolic office is unique to these guys, uh, not to us. Apostle just means uh, sent ones or sent out ones. Uh, the apostolic office is unique. You are not an apostle. I am not an apostle. Uh, these guys played a foundational role that's not carried over after they died. But being a sent one absolutely is. To be a sent one absolutely is. Listen to the familiar words of Matthew 28 when Jesus ascends into heaven. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the call for all Christians, all disciples, to make disciples. And if you are a Christian, you have received a commission by Jesus with all of his authority and the promise that he'll be with you forever in whatever you're doing as you further the gospel. We are recipients. If you're a Christian, you're a recipient of astounding grace. Astounding grace. And we've been commissioned to share that grace, to share that good news with those around us. We have an unshakable hope that we have the joy and privilege and direct command to go and share with others. Right? Even if we're imperfect, even if we're a motley crew of different political, uh, you know, racial, whatever division, we might be a strange mix of people, we are commissioned to go and preach. And preaching is not just what happens behind a pulpit. We are to go and be a herald. That's what that word means, to be a herald, to proclaim the good news. We are all invited into the work. And then finally, at the very end of our passage, Jesus gives a descriptor of who his family is. In verses 34 and 35, and looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Christians are not saved by good works. And that is good news for each and every one of us because we can't be good enough. We can't do enough. We can't earn our salvation. But what's Jesus saying here about uh, doing the will of God? Well, being obedient to God's will and God's word, God's instruction, is not the root of our salvation. It's the fruit of our salvation. It is what demonstrates that we have been changed, that we have tr been transformed. To be a Christian is not to simply be a pardoned criminal and then exiled out into the wilderness. To be a Christian is to be transformed from the inside out. It's to receive new life and then to, to joyfully be obedient to do God's will. Right? It's cyclical. By knowing God right, and wanting to share that good news, we, we know him more, we love him more, we want to do his will, and it's just round and round. That's the, 
the, what it means to be a Christian. It's what the first disciples did. It's what we are called to do if you are in Christ. It's a simple profile in this passage of what it means to be a disciple. Come to Jesus by faith, be with him, to know him, share that message with others, and be obedient to the will of God as he's revealed in his word. It's a simple thing, but it's not easy. These are challenging words for us as we think about this stripped-down description of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's sobering uh, that we are called to be with Jesus and we neglect it. We are called to share in this hope with those around us, but we don't. We are called to do the will of God, but so often we fail. So Christian, you could choose today to just, you know, squirm in your seat and feel bad for a little bit and then move on with your day. Or you can choose today to make a change, to model our discipleship, not after misunderstandings, not to, you know, selfishly be fascinated with Jesus, to not do all these wrong ways of responding, but to truly respond to Jesus. What would it look like for you to go back to basics on some of these things? And what would it look like for us to do that together, church? We don't live on an island with this. We need to help one another. Because again, one of the implications of all of this, of being brought into the family of God, is that we are brothers and sisters. Right? And that brings challenges. But it's a beautiful, stunning picture of what we're called to as disciples. Now that's more than a metaphor. But to each of you, wherever you are at with answering these questions, who is Jesus and how must I respond to him? Think through those questions today. Think through them here. Talk with someone after the service about these questions. Maybe it'll be a bit of a rock in your shoe. You know how annoying that is. Right? Maybe that'll be a bit of a rock in your shoe as you're thinking today. How, how am I actually going to respond to this? What would, what would be the implications of this? And some will respond with selfish fascination. Others with direct rejection. Others still with misunderstanding. But I invite you and even plead with you today to respond in the way that Jesus calls us to with faith and obedience. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we need your help. We desperately need your help. We thank you that you've called us to uh, respond in repentance and faith, to see the beauty and the joy of being with Jesus, and to go with that message of hope. Help us to not simply be fans of Jesus. Help us not to, uh, anyone here who, whose heart is hard to these things, help them not to reject Jesus. Help us not to misunderstand these things we've read and spoken about. God, if there's anything that is not of you, purge that from our mind. But God, we need your help to respond rightly. But oh Lord, we thank you that we can by your grace that you've made a way for us to be made right with God. 
What an amazing truth that is. In Jesus' name, amen.